A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Hey there, America. Can we just get this election over with already? We've had enough excitement, right? More than enough pot twists. The president getting coronavirus, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying, that whole first debate, the alleged contents of Hunter Biden's hard drive, which are either totally unconvincing or deeply, urgently important, depending on your point of view. We finally got to see the president's tax records after all these years, and it barely seemed to make a dent in anything. Militia plotted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And then after that, the president's followers chanted, lock her up. The president, joking, not joking, told his supporters in North Carolina to go out and try to vote twice. And then after that, the attorney general declared on CNN to Wolf Blitzer that voting twice might actually be legal. I don't know what the law in the particular state says. You can't vote twice. Well, I don't know what the law in the particular state says and when that vote becomes final. Is there any state that says you can vote twice? Well, there's some, you know, maybe that you can change your vote up to a particular time. I don't know what the law That's is, so I'm not going to offer. He was saying Attorney General William Barr looks amazingly relaxed as he says all this. Calm. Like nothing's out of the ordinary. Nothing to see here, officer. Watching him, it's hard not to think. Is this really happening? I get that same feeling looking at photos of the president's rallies where even now... He's packing people in. Tons of people with no masks, not following CDC guidelines. He's doing this even after he, his wife, his son, his press secretary, his campaign manager, the chair of the Republican National Committee, White House housekeeping and military staff, members of the vice president's staff, Stephen Miller, Kellyanne Conway, and Hope Hicks all got coronavirus. Even though cases are at an all-time high and on the rise. Looking at the not socially distanced crowds, it's like... Is this really happening? And now, coming up, this coming Tuesday, we're either going to have an election with a clear winner or, apparently, the vote will be contested. A contested election seems so possible because the president keeps saying over and over that he's way ahead in the polls and those polls that we are all seeing on the news saying that he's way behind, those are fake. And so, if he loses, he says, there's only one possible explanation. The only way we can lose, in my opinion, is massive fraud. And that's what's, that's what's happening, because all over the country, you're seeing it. Thousands and thousands of ballots. How about the military? That was Monday in Allentown. Here he is in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election. And we can't let that happen. There's no evidence for any massive fraud like he's talking about. When he talks about mail-in ballots being a problem, which he does nearly everywhere, there's no evidence for that either. Lots more Democrats than the Republicans are voting with mail-in ballots this year. Here's the president on Sunday in New Hampshire calling those ballots into question. The other way, they said millions of ballots. We don't know who's sending them. We don't know where they're going. We don't know who's bringing them back. We don't know who signed them. And it shouldn't be allowed. And the Democrats know it's a hoax. And we shouldn't let it happen. So, this Tuesday, he may fight those ballots. And we might find ourselves in a big, no-holds-barred, season finale, contested election, constitutional, national meltdown, with both sides arguing over whether to count mail-in ballots and ballots that arrive after November 3rd. And if that happens, people on both sides will probably take to the streets to protest, and who knows where that might lead. 
And then, of course, there are the scenarios where the whole thing gets thrown to Congress or the Supreme Court to decide. So many different ways this could play out where whichever side loses, red or blue, they'll probably never be able to see the final decision as fair and legitimate. So one half of the country will not accept who the other half puts into office. Or maybe that won't happen. Maybe somebody's going to win decisively. That's where we are. Our world is either about to slip into utter chaos or the election will go just fine and things will be fine. That's the unreality of now. There are so many things right now that make it feel like the ground underneath us is like thin as a cracker with molten lava underneath. So many things it's hard to understand. This is real. This is really happening. And today on our program, we have people trying to get their minds around that. I have to say that is so much of the mood as we head into this Simpsons Halloween special of an election day. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Jacqueline, would you like to come up to first class? So the journalist E. Jean Carroll has been in the news this week when a federal judge ruled that the president can be sued by Carroll. Carroll says that back in the 1990s, Donald Trump raped her in a dressing room in the department store Bergdorf Goodman. He says she's lying. She's suing him for defamation. She's one of dozens of women who've accused the president of sexual assault or harassment. The president denies all of their allegations. These stories have been so widely covered and everybody is so used to them that to Carol, it felt like at this point they were just being ignored. It seemed kind of incredible to her. Our program today is about people feeling like, is this really happening? And she definitely felt that about this. It killed her that these stories just somehow didn't seem to matter. And this summer she decided to try to do something about it. She had a bunch of conversations with other women who've accused the president and published them in a series of stories in The Atlantic. And her idea was... Most people only have a vague sense of these stories and don't have much of a sense of what these women say actually happened. And by diving into the details of these stories, she'd restore them to human size, in full color. She's adapted one of the uh, articles that she wrote for us. It's with one of the president's accusers named Jessica Leeds. A warning about content before we start. This is a frank conversation about sexual assault. Here's E. Jean Carroll. Let me set the scene. Midsummer twilight. And Jessica Leeds and I are letting down what's left of our hair. Jessica's in her elegant crib in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm in my little shack just off the Appalachian Trail. And we're zooming like two old screech owls, discovering how much we have in common, which includes our love for Mr. Paul Newman, our age, and our height. How tall are you now? Well, I'm I'm five seven now. I was okay. five nine at the. Right. I've lost two inches. Me too. I've lost two inches. I don't. Know, I don't know where they've gone, but I've lost them. I love being tall. When I was working, I was always so thankful. Yeah, me too. That I was tall. About forty years ago, when Jessica was working as a salesperson for a company that sold newsprint to publications like the Washington Post. She sat down next to Donald Trump on an airplane. Let me just say that if you have never Zoomed with a silver-haired, soigné, 78-year-old woman who describes what it's like being strapped in a seat 
on a Braniff Airlines flight with a future president of the United States trying to fasten his lips on her like a six-foot-two suckfish? Well, in my opinion, you have not lived, let alone Zoomed, at all. But before we board that flight, a refresher. Jessica was one of the first women to publicly accuse Trump of sexual assault in 2016. It was on the front page of the New York Times. I knew if the story did get any attention that the first thing Trump would say is that I wasn't pretty enough. Right. I knew, I knew instinctively that that's what he was going to say. How did Jessica know? Because Jessica is an old bat. Old bats are the best, even better than screech owls. I'm an old bat myself. We old bats don't kid ourselves. And, in fact, one day after the New York Times published a story about what happened to Jessica on that plane in 1980, Trump yammered about her accusations at a rally. Oh, I was with Donald Trump in 1980. I was sitting with him on an airplane. And he went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go after. Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. I told Jessica the same thing happened to me. I knew it was coming, too. I knew it, of course, and then he said about me, she's not right. Because they're running pictures of me when I'm 75 years old. Right. And it's not fair. If they had right. run pictures of me as I looked, you and I caught tons of shit because we're older women. For the honor of Jessica Leeds and old bats everywhere, Jessica is a beauty now, and she was a beauty 40 years ago when she got on that flight to New York. And as she remembers it, it was a Braniff flight. Braniff was the chic airline. Her seat would have been full grain leather. Her flight attendant would have been clad in Halston. And her plane, it would have been painted in Persis green, mercury blue, or sparkling burgundy. And so what were you wearing? Do you remember when you got on that plane? Yep. I had my best suit was, was a brown tweed. Oh, I love that suit. And, and it was jacket and, and a skirt. It was a fabulous outfit. It really was. I never wore it again after that day, though. I hung on to it for quite a while, but I never wore it again. I know exactly what she means. It was the same for me with the dress I had on at Bergdorf's. I didn't want to throw it away because it was a beautiful Donna Karen. I would never throw it away, but I couldn't put it on because bad things happen. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so isn't that interesting? We have so much in common. So, all right, so you were, now tell me what happened. You get on the plane. I get on the plane and I had, I was sitting in the back and I remember watching the stewardess come walking down the aisle and she saw me and she said, would you like to come up to first class? We have, we have space. Never occurred to me not to say yes. I gathered my, my purse and I went up to first class. That had happened before. Yeah, it's happened to me too. Yeah, I kind of accepted the fact that it was entertainment for the big honchos up in first class. 
Now, I don't understand if people understand what we're talking about, but that's what they did. They chose the yeah. looking yeah. best dressed people and put them up in first. That's right. What we're talking about is how things used to be. Buying a ticket, putting on our best clothes, hopping on a cocktail party, heading for New York or Chicago or Miami or any jazzy city USA. And this party lacked zip unless somebody very rich or very pretty was present. Men in first class would size up the female passengers before boarding and hold a brief conference with the check-in crew. Or, alternately, a helpful flight attendant would simply stand in the aisle waving people away and rearranging the seating chart so that an extremely tall chap, for instance, with black hair like grease felt, could have the spot by me, which is what I told Jessica had happened on a jumbo jet to L.A. After the plane took off, following the meal, the chap shows me a photo of his private plane. Then he shows me a photo of his Rolls Royce. Then he shows me his erection. It would never have occurred to me to call anybody and say anything. Mm-hmm. We grew up expecting men to make a pass. At. I was not surprised. I expected it from men. Je- uh, Jessica, you and I were born during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. We did not report. We expected it and we laughed. But, you know, we were wrong. We were wrong. We should have spoken up, you know, like they're doing now. Well, we we were so thankful, though. Oh, to to have the fucking job. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my Lord. The flight attendant escorts Jessica to the front of the plane. She sits down in the aisle seat beside Donald Trump. As I recall, he introduced himself. The name meant nothing to me. It wouldn't have. This was 1979-1980. Jessica wasn't a native New Yorker. She was not yet aware of all the levels, the ranks, the spheres of New York society that Trump, a young rat out of Queens, was chewing his way through. He was very good looking in 1980. Do you agree? Well, I found him very attractive in 1996. Yeah. He was very pretty. Yeah, I guess. I, you know, I, I, he was not ugly. I can remember. I don't remember my my reaction. I, he was perfectly reasonable when I first sat down. I mean, it was blonde, tall, good size man, that sort of stuff. But I, I don't remember being overwhelmed by his looks. Or, Did he uh, ask you about yourself? What did we talk about? We talked about him. I remember we took off and they served this wonderful meal. And then they they came and they picked up everything. And within a short amount of time, all of a sudden, he's like on me like a wet blanket. Did he try to kiss you first? Yes. Yes. She glances away from the screen with a revolted wince. It was such a shock. It was like all of a sudden he's like on me. Jessica is ladylike. Therefore, allow me, for I have experience with Trump, to say in plain English what I believe Trump is about to do. I believe he will go straight for the crotch, just like he brags on the Access Hollywood tape. This man who today claims that he has never kissed or groped a woman without consent. It's like, it's got 
four extra hands because he's grabbing my breasts. He's trying to kiss me. I'm trying to get his hands off of me. And this kind of struggle went on for a little while. And then it's when he started to put his hand up my skirt that I got a jolt of, of strength and managed to wiggle myself out of, of, the, of the seat. Jessica grabs her purse and storms to the back of the plane. Now, wait, so did he make it all the way to your panties or not? No, no. Because you had by that time started to stand up, right? Right. Was there anybody else? Well, yeah, there was, the, there was the guy across the aisle whose eyes were about the size of a saucer. And I kept thinking, <laughs> why don't you say something? Or where, where is the stewardess on this whole thing? You know, why doesn't somebody come and rescue me? And that's when I realized there was only me that was going to rescue me. So that's when I... I'll, well, I'm it, glad you thought of... I'm th- See, some women freeze in this situation. Yes, yes. I know. You didn't freeze. No, no. But I certainly didn't say anything. I didn't, I didn't say anything either. I didn't scream. I didn't no. do anything. I laughed. Did you laugh? Yeah. No, I don't recall laughing. No. I, I took it seriously. I mean, I, I, this, this was a real physical attack. And oh, no, it's an attack, an assault. Yeah. Although we talk about Trump groping women, most people don't understand how brazen Trump really is because no one knows what groping means. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to the Trump accusers. Who knows what the heck Trump is actually doing or on what part of the female body he is doing it? One of Trump's accusers described for me Trump putting his hand up her skirt and onto her vulva, and she used the plain English. It was like a squish, she said, a squeeze. And she made a motion with her hand like squeezing a rubber duck. That is groping. So why does Trump do it? Jessica and I ponder. Let's try to figure this out. The main question is, he knows he's not going to be able to have intercourse with you on the plane. He knows this. Why does he do this? Why, what did he think he was going to gain? Did it, was it sexual? Did he, were you turning him on to such an extent that he couldn't stand it? What was it? Well, I, personally, I, I can't, I think, I thought he was bored. Oh. <laughs> Nothing happening, you know, oh, so let's, let, let's, let's grab a little pussy here, you know. This oh, is, this is such an insight to me. This is such an insight. Got it. But it it goes along with his Hollywood tape. And no, he has no attention span. No, no. Was he reading it all beforehand? No, no. Newspaper? Nope. Who get on a plane in 1980 without a ton of magazines and newspapers in the Wall Street? Exactly. And he had nothing to read? Nope. He thought he was bored. That is an insight that I think it really sends it home. Because some people have claimed he does it for power. I don't think it has anything to do with power. Well, could be. Uh, but I, I, I really kind of just chalked it off to him being bored. So Trump grabs one woman. Then he grabs the next woman. 
and the next woman, and pretty soon we start thinking Trump grabbing women is normal. Then Trump grabbing women becomes so normal, it's boring. It is old news, and there's so much that he's done. But Jessica, it's not old news. We're the most current thing. We tried to warn people. We tried to warn America. This Mm -hmm. is who he was. And so now we seem to have been forgotten. We've been pushed. Well, we've been ignored. And this drives me crazy. This is why we're doing this. We're doing it, you know, between now and the election. That is our duty to once again tell America what this man is like. Well, some people may have forgotten us. But you know who has not forgotten us? The men who are voting for Trump because he grabbed us. Because he's macho. Because Trump proved he can paw any woman he wants. And you know who else is not forgotten? Women like Jessica and I. We'll never forget. How often did you think about this between then and 2015 when he came to the fore again, you know? I probably would not have had it so emblazed in my mind if it hadn't been for the gala at Saks Fifth Avenue. The gala at Saks Fifth Avenue. This is a year or two after the flight. And it's a benefit for the Humane Society of New York and a few other charities. Jessica is the assistant to the president of the Humane Society and is handing out table assignments. I had this fabulous dress. Oh, what was it? Let me hear. <laughs> Mary McFadden. Oh, I love pleated, Mary McFadden. Pleated all these little pleats in a taxicab yellow. And I show up at Saks and I've got this great dress on and I'm doing my thing and I'm meeting Jeffrey Bean, I'm meeting Bill Blass, I'm meeting all of these designers for this party. And in fact, Mary McFadden came up and looked at me and said, that's my dress. And I said, yes, it is. (laughs) So it it was really a fabulous, a fabulous eating. And then Trump with his wife, Ivana, came up. She was pregnant, very pregnant. And he looked at me when I handed him his table assignment. And I'm looking at him thinking, you're the asshole from the airplane. I remember you. The future president of the United States remembers Jessica, too. And he looked at me and he said, I remember you. You're the cunt from the airplane. E. Jean Carroll. She's a journalist and the author of the memoir, What Do We Need Men For? Her series of conversations with women who accused Donald Trump of sexual assault is available at theatlantic.com. I guess I just must be a daredevil. I don't feel anything until I smash it up. I'm caught on the cold, caught on the hot, not so with the warmer lot. And all I want's a confidant to help me laugh it off. And don't Coming up, seeing people fight over corn dogs in a grocery store leads one woman to do something that she has avoided for years. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, The Unreality of Now. As we approach this historic and momentous election day, we have stories of people trying to get their heads around and adapt to this strange time we are living through. 
We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, the gun reality of now. One sign of how shaken up people are in our country right now, gun sales. They're going nuts. A record year, according to the FBI. The FBI is doing twice the number of background checks they did last year. A survey of gun store owners by an industry trade group estimates that something like 40% of their sales are to first-time gun buyers. 40% to people who've never owned a gun. Lily Sullivan talked to some of them, and it was like a tour of different fears that people have about this country right now. The thing I wanted to know was, why now? What's the thing that made you want a gun? Brian told me he was around guns some when he was growing up. He'd sometimes do target practice or go shooting. When he was 16, he was hunting with his family, and he killed a deer. It made him really sad, so he never bought a gun. Now he's 52 and lives in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It's in the mountains, kind of a ski town in the winter. He just bought a gun the day I talked to him, a Glock 9mm. The thing that made him want one? The first presidential debate. The one where there was so much yelling. After watching that debate, I laughed out loud multiple times, but at the same time, I was horrified. What was it about the debate? Oh, I think it was just the the non-civility. It wasn't civil. I mean, Biden was trying to be civil, but the leader of our country was not trying to be civil. I mean, whoever thought our country would come to this to where... It almost seems like, I mean, I don't know if it's being towards a civil war, but it's not, it doesn't seem civil. Everybody on my side, we're mad. Everybody on that side, they're mad. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know after the election if, if the Republicans are going to take this very well if they lose. Trump's already saying that he's, he hasn't said he's going to accept any kind of, I mean, it's going to be challenged. And then you got... I think there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be people protesting. Protesting the election, you mean? Yeah, the results. And I mean, it's just a, and you know what? And those people that are going to be protesting the results, I mean, I hope they don't become violent, but they're all Second Amendment gun-toting Americans, you know? And I don't know. And I think I'm fine in my small little town that I live in, but I mean, you just never know. I actually went and looked at guns at one gun shop on the Thursday after the debate, and they were out. They were like out of guns. They were out of ammo. I got online and I looked at stores in Denver and stuff like that. Even what sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. Unbelievable. And so then I found another place. It's like an hour from home, and they had guns. It's a weird thing because uh, because I feel like I go to the gun counter and first off, there's the whole mask, non-mask, you know, libtard thing. So yeah, it felt weird because you're talking to a bunch of gun-toting Republicans trying to buy a gun off. So I'm there in like cut-off sweatpants and a hoodie, you know, wearing a mask. And so, it's, yeah, it's a little bit... You said libtard? Oh, I've heard that so much. I and I went into my local gun shop where masks should be required according to the ordinances. And I was in there talking to the kid who had a pistol on his side, you know, looked like he was you know, he was definitely not voting for the same person I'm voting for. And he did not have a mask on. And his dad who owned the shop did not have a mask on. And the kids after I'm in there for a couple minutes, he's like, You don't have to wear your mask and I'm like 
uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and just keep my mask on if you don't mind. And he kind of paused and he was like, got choked up on like he was going to say some stuff. And I was finally like, no, we don't need to discuss it. I would just have some questions about these guns. And he kind of wasn't as nice to me after that. Oh, really? Like you think it maybe like irritated him a little or something? Yeah. Like because I was a lip tart in his store looking at guns. So I guess now I'm a gun-toting lip tart. For Dijonet, the moment she decided to buy a gun happened in March. She's a nurse in San Bernardino County, outside of L.A. Dijonet has an aunt who wanted her to get a gun for years. Her aunt owns a gun store. It's actually the only black-owned gun store on the West Coast, where she trains women to shoot. Dijonet's pretty, her aunt told me. She worries about her niece dating and living alone. Dijonet had even had a stalker once. But the thing that flipped Dijonet wasn't the stalker. She was in the grocery store after work one day. The pandemic had just arrived. I've never seen the the grocery store look the way that it looked. Um, you know, lines wrapped around the building, um, like people beating people up for their groceries or for their baskets because there were none. Like everywhere. And it was just like complete pandemonium. You say beating people up, like fighting? Yeah, people were getting into fights, physical fights. So we, what were people fighting about? Um, the last sanitizer. I mean, but there's not, it wasn't just one. There were a couple of them. People were fighting over the last pack of tissue, uh, literally the last pack of uh, frozen corn dogs. Everyone was buying everything that they could put their hands on. And I just remember looking at all these people and it, it just made me scared. I said, wow, I was scared. So I called my aunt and I said, hey, um, I need to buy a gun. Um, and she's like, she started laughing. And I said, what do you have? And then I sent her the money, like right there. And like in line? Yeah, I zilled it to her. I literally, I zilled her the money. And I'm like, I already paid for it. This is mine. Put it aside. A lot of first-time gun owners I talked to explained their reason this way. They'd started to feel something weird in the air. A kind of amorphous anxiety. Shane is 49. He has a house in the hills in Northern California. So in addition to all the coronavirus strangeness... They've also had wildfires and rolling blackouts. One day a few months ago, the power went out. And it didn't come back for 14 days. Which meant no internet. And then the cell towers stopped working. So things started getting weird. You know, that's how, that's the best way that we can put it is, is things started getting weird. Like people would drive right up to the grocery store, like not park, just like literally drive right up and nose first right in front of the doors for the grocery store and get out and just leave their car there. You mean those sliding doors? Yeah. So there was like fraying. There's just a feeling. There's just a feeling in the air that was um, not a good feeling. Like you could pick up that things were getting kind of weird and we're going to get, <laughs> we're going to get weirder if the, um, if the power didn't come on soon. I asked Shane and everyone else, when you think about needing a gun, what do you picture? Is there a scene that plays in your mind? Nearly everyone said it's night, they're sleeping, and someone dangerous shows up. Shane's version is people wandering to his house in a disaster, finding it in the woods through the smoke, and trying to take his family's supplies, their food, their generator, the things they need to survive. There's something pre-apocalyptic about it. He's on his own, 
protecting his home from marauders. This is stuff he doesn't think will happen. But at the same time, for months, they've been surrounded by fires, smoke so thick that it can look like dusk in the middle of the day. So somehow, it does seem possible to him. All kinds of things do. I wonder if there are people who, in our community, who resent us because we're successful or for whatever reason, because we're Jews or because we're gay. And, you know, you know, we do have a growing neo-Nazi threat in this country. It's our biggest internal security danger is the growth of neo-Nazis. And these, those people know how to use firearms, you know? So, um, but my feeling is if you're in the left or even a moderate, you should be doing the same thing to protect yourself. We've, uh, my husband's gone a little out of control with the ammunition. He's purchased like 1,600 rounds. And I said, Glenn, in an, <laughs> I said, after a gun battle involving 1,600 rounds, your gun A would melt because the barrel gets <laughs> so hot. You have to stop firing it after a certain point. And I said, our house would probably collapse. It'd look like Swiss cheese. Like, the, you know, the walls would collapse inward on themselves. <laughs> but he's like, it's just hard to find ammunition for this gun. And I'm like, I'm fine with about 75 rounds. Like, I don't feel like I need you know, 100, 1,600 rounds of ammunition. And I actually asked him to please stop buying ammunition. But oh my gosh. Um, he, he did really stock up. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to picture 1,600 rounds. Is that like a shoebox full of bullets? <laughs> we actually did buy some Gucci some Gucci flats and there was filled up with that box was filled up with bullets. <laughs> it's kind of an incongruous look, you know, the Gucci <laughs> shoebox with the the 22 bullets. That's a gay male way of doing it. Nancy bought her pistol around Mother's Day. She sent me a photo of herself on Mother's Day, dressed in a Lily Pulitzer blouse and pale blue cardigan, holding a Smith & Wesson 380 EC. She's 53. She owns a small business making luggage tags. She's also worked as a nurse, a lot in hospice. She lives with her family just outside of Appleton, Wisconsin. She described her town to me as your typical don't-have-to-lock-your-doors suburb. Before this year, she'd never even held a gun. It was actually kind of hard for her to explain why it felt so urgent. It's kind of like a nameless, faceless feeling that I have, almost like the earthquake that the world had where everything shifted and the normal that we knew is no longer there. It's like... Um, the axis, the world fell off its axis. Since the pandemic, she says, her world has suddenly shrunken to just her family and her home. That was all you had. And so if someone was going to come into your house and take that away, as everything else had been taken away, that was not okay. Nancy lives two hours north of Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there were big protests after the shooting of Jacob Blake by police officers. Some demonstrators set cars and buildings on fire. The National Guard was called in. A teenager, a Trump supporter who came to the protests in support of Blue Lives Matter, shot three people, killing two of them. There have been protests in Appleton, near where Nancy lives. It's this small town. Nothing happens. You know, nothing goes on. We don't have any murders. But we had riots here in Appleton. Um, so we got kind of a, you know, a small town taste of people, you know, being upset and being um, the tension. The police in Appleton don't use the word riot to describe what happened there. One man was assaulted, but there were no fires, no vandalism. 
And when Nancy and I talked about it more, she agreed that riot wasn't the right word. Nancy already owned her gun by the time this happened. But a lot of gun store owners have said that customers point to the protests as one of the reasons they felt so worried. I don't want to sound like a privileged white woman that I'm living in, you know, this la land, which is really mostly white people here. I mean, this is this is like almost Utah white. It's it's white, white here. Um, but it, there's been more racial tension and more people coming in. And um, I don't know. I think it's the underlying um, fear. Um, and I don't know who I'm afraid of. Um, that's also kind of upsetting, too, is I don't really know who am I afraid of? Who am I worried about? Tell me more about that. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know. You know, is there somebody that's going to be coming for um, revenge? Like, you know, since I'm Caucasian, is there somebody that's coming for my property? Um, is there someone coming just because they feel like it? Um, so, like, when you're thinking about just the unrest, are you, like, picturing black people? Or, like, because I also know that in Kenosha, it was a white teenager who killed two people. So I'm just kind of curious, like, is it is it black people? Is it white people? Honestly, is, if there's... I had to say what I was worried about is, and this is going to sound truly awful, but I don't think it, it's... Um, it's so much a matter of a color of a skin, but more of a socioeconomic um, level of someone that's so desperate that um, things are so bad and people are losing their job and people are unable to make their rent. And I think that's what makes me more nervous um, mm. than particular like Black Lives Matter or African-Americans or anything like that. I think it's more just the desperation of people. Um, so, you know, the protests and stuff like that doesn't scare me. I think it's more just the world in general that scares me um, and the unrest and the uneasy feeling than anything else. One more person. Elsa lives in a small town in North Carolina. Growing up, no one around her had guns. She grew up in Kenya, moved to the U.S. over 30 years ago. That nightmare scenario that nearly everyone talked about, of being woken up in the night by intruders, asleep and helpless, it actually happened to Elsa a couple years ago. The intruders fled before hurting anyone, but it was terrifying. She thought about getting a gun, but she didn't until this year, when COVID hit, and when police violence set off protests around the country. I worry not about the Black Lives Matter. I worry about the the crazies that are out there that are against the Black Lives Matter movement that could target someone like me just because of the color of my skin. For one, I'm mixed. And mm-hmm. my daughter is pale very very <laughs> she, she's got her complexion she's got caucasian complexion because my well my ex-husband was white okay and like i said he's my ex-husband so my current <laughs> husband is a black man yeah so uh, black woman white white child is an issue um and yeah. even worse i feel worse for my husband because 
there are a lot of times that he goes out with my daughter. And my daughter is, well, aside from her nose, she could pass for white. So, you know, him walking out with her, I can see someone trying something crazy, you know? Yeah. I worry because, in part because of the rhetoric that I see, number one, coming from the White House. It scares me. And more and more as we're getting closer to the election, I'm more and more scared. And I'm, I've become so aware now, everywhere I go, I make sure I have my, my weapon on me. Oh, wow. So I never, I came from a third world country, never expected the environment here to be this thick. I feel so much tension, um, and I, I fear so much. There's a lot of fear. <laughs> you got the extremists, and you don't know who they are. You don't know who they are. But it's gotten a lot worse during Trump. are a lot of people that all along have tried to blend in, right? Yeah. Trump came along and a lot of the people that used to kind of try to blend in and not bring out their true feelings are now bringing out their true feelings and they feel like they can get away with it. Whereas before that wasn't there. Do you feel like you can see things changing around you, people coming out kind of? Yeah, well, when you start seeing the <laughs> when you start seeing the Confederate flag all over you, all over around you, that's a big sign, you know? I saw one that was right on the side of the highway that didn't used to be there. How does your husband feel about the decision to buy a gun? Uh, <laughs> 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 he is completely against it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, um, I, I had to kind of ease it in. Um, yeah. Cause he, he, he was not for it at all. Why not? <laughs> and he is completely against them. He's completely against guns. So I think he's he's kind of warming up to the fact that I have a couple. <laughs> but um but yeah, he's 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 not comfortable, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um even when I'm cleaning it and I try not to clean it when he's he's around cuz he's just not comfortable. The last question I had for everyone. Now that people have their guns, does it help? Do you feel better? 100%. 100%. Again, here's Dijanae, who bought her gun when she saw people fighting over corn dogs. I feel so much better. Like, I go to bed really? at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. You, you have something to protect yourself. I mean, I, I live alone, but I still sleep with my uh, bedroom door closed and locked. Um, and so... Really? Oh. Yeah, yeah, I do just in case yeah. to, to give me like a couple of extra seconds 
I guess that's how I see it. So now I'm I'm fine. <laughs> Again, here's Nancy from Wisconsin. Oh gosh, yes. Just having it next to the bed. Yep. Just having it next to the bed. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Here's Shane, who worried about marauders and neo-Nazis. Being powerless is a is not a good place to be. It does make you feel more secure. Like if if things really start going downhill, you're like, we can handle this. I don't worry about that anymore, which is nice. And finally, Brian, who had so much trouble finding a gun, and finally picked one up the day I talked to him. Does it make you feel safer? No, not yet. No, it, uh, no. That is that's an interesting question because there's a gun sitting on my counter, and I got ammo next to it. And I don't know where to put it. Oh, really? You know, I don't. And I'll tell you, I, I'm not. Let's just say the ammo's still in the ammo boxes and the gun's still in the gun case. I'm not in a hurry to, like, put the ammo in the, what do they call that thing? The, uh, oh, they call it something the ammo goes in. It's, uh, I don't know what it's called. You know, because it'll hold so many bullets in it. I forget what that thing's called. But I'm just not in a hurry to put any bullets in it. I mean. Got it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I honestly, I really don't want one. Oh, you don't? I mean, I don't. I just, I almost feel like I just had to get one. Oh, interesting. Does it kind of suck to have one? Yeah, I don't like it. I wish I didn't think, I wish I didn't think I needed one. Brian told me he grew up with guns, but they were for hunting and target practice, for fun. He says nobody talked about self-defense. Nobody talked about shooting other people. But that's all anybody talks about today. That's one thing that unites us. We're united in fear of each other. Lily Sullivan is a producer on our program. Norgill helped her with additional reporting. My life's in constant danger I'm threatened by each stranger I'm scared they'll club and stab me Scared kidnappers will nab me I'm scared of home intrusion And cultural infusion I'm scared of immigrants And teens in drooping pants I'm scared Act three, second time's the charm So maybe you've heard we're trying to hold an election this year with a possible record-breaking turnout that is also during a pandemic, which has led us into a vast territory of who knows if this is going to work. Reporter Johnny Kaufman has been embedded with the election staff in Fulton County, Georgia. That's the county with the most people in the state and with the city of Atlanta. For months, Johnny has been given unusual access to the election staff, the people who are responsible for handling the mail-in ballots and the voting machines and all that stuff. He was interested in seeing how things would go this November, partly because they went so badly when they tried to hold the primary during the pandemic back in June. Here's Johnny Kaufman. The primary election here was a mess. Some voters asked for mail-in ballots but never got them. Then people who wanted to vote in person waited and waited in line. People shouldn't have to wait three hours to vote. Uh, This is beyond ridiculous. One guy famously started his cell phone timer running, and by the time he voted, it was one in the morning. He'd been there almost eight hours and watched all of Curb Your Enthusiasm season eight on his phone. The front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said, complete meltdown. The state government was pretty clear whose fault they thought all this was. 
Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, said, quote, This all lays on Fulton County. He launched an investigation into the county and asked for a new law that would let him take over county election departments if needed. The guy whose job he'd take over if he did that, the man currently running the Fulton County Elections Department, is Rick Barron. Uh, whatever Secretary Raffensperger's opinion is, it's his opinion, it's his opinion alone, and I disagree with him. It's worth pointing out, Raffensperger and the state government are Republican. Fulton County and Atlanta are controlled by Democrats. Rick started working in elections after he quit his job as a middle manager at a bank. He told me he wanted to contribute to, quote, the betterment of man, or something, end quote. Rick has this quality that I think lots of people might like to see in the guy who runs their elections. He's measured and kind of boring in public. Like at press conferences, he'll just rattle off stat after stat. But during the primary, beneath that public face, Rick was full of dread. I just, I just was constantly, I've had this constant feeling of stress and that I was failing at my job. And it didn't seem like anything we did uh, helped. One of the things that went wrong in June is that Fulton had these new touchscreen voting computers that were imposed on them by the state. And there wasn't enough time to train poll workers properly. But Rick and the Fulton staff say most of the troubles in the primary were really about the pandemic. So many applications for mail-in ballots came in, the email system crashed, and then some of the staff got COVID. It slowed their operations, and they had to close the elections office to disinfect it. Then, close to primary election day, dozens of poll workers quit, scared about the virus. Polling places like churches decided they didn't want to be polling places anymore. Tim Cummings is a manager at the warehouse where the county stores its election equipment. He told me at the last minute, the Fulton staff thought about just pitching a tent in the middle of an Atlanta park. Get people to vote there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we were, were like, we're like drowning, we're like drowning men grabbing for stars. We got to find somewhere for this to be. In the middle of all this, a beloved longtime employee named Beverly Walker died. Everyone had to cope with that. She was 62 and worked in the department for 14 years. Even after she retired, she would come back to help as a temp. Here's Tim Cummings again. I knew Beverly. We, we all did. We worked with her because they, they're here every election, you know. There's a picture of her on the wall in my cubicle right now. It, they went through a lot. They were. And Ralph got sick too. I didn't realize. Yeah, he was he was sick too. We were worried about whether or not he was gonna make it. Yeah, 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 definitely. We still had to get a job done. It wasn't easy, and some days people were just pissed. But they came in, they did the job. I don't really know how to say it's a really bad time to make any mistake because people right now are really unforgiving of anything. This is Karen Ficklin. She runs the mail-in ballot operation for Fulton County. They don't care what you're going through, how you're feeling, what's happening with you or, you know, anything. It's just like, you know, yeah, I guess it just is what it is. It's the beast that we have to deal with right now. In the lead-up to the general election, the county made a bunch of changes in the hopes of avoiding another meltdown like the primary. For starters, 91 more polling places on Election Day, with more training on the touchscreen voting computers for all the poll workers. 
Nonprofits gave them millions of dollars to help pay for all that. But the thing they're really hoping will make this different than last time is that they're trying to get people to vote now, in person or in the mail. Rick will tell any reporter who gets within two feet of him that he wants as many people as possible to vote before Election Day. 80% is his goal. So a couple weeks ago, early voting began in Georgia. Rick and his team had been working nonstop through the weekends, right up till the midnight before the polls opened, to make sure the machines would work without a hitch and the lines would move quickly. When I saw Rick, he was often harried, messy hair, hopping between meetings. On Monday morning, October 12, the first day of early voting, I went to the largest polling place in the county. It's actually the giant arena where the Atlanta Hawks play. The team offered it up after what happened during the primary. I wanted to see how things would go. Hey, how's it going? I'm trying to meet up with the Fulton County Elections Director who's inside. Gate 2. When I get there around 8, hundreds of people were already lined up, and TV crews were camped out. I tracked down Rick near some closed concession stands. Wow. You see the how many people are out there? Yeah. That's really, like, hold on. Rick takes a call, talking through a black mask with vote written on it in bold white print. He's more put together than usual, clean-shaven, wearing a dark blue suit. It's a big day. Then an election worker comes up to him. People are trying to vote, but an error keeps popping up. Session ID invalid. They aren't working? What, like, on all of them? They have over 300 voting computers at the arena. Apparently, none of them are working. Rick hurries down some stairs, past empty seats, to the floor of the arena where the voting computers are set up, a jumbotron overhead. Lines fill the hallways of the arena. Um, Rick, that you? Uh-huh. Yeah, so the first two people that came down both did not make it through, and so that's when then we stopped people a, from coming. I've already got a call in the Nadine as we speak. A Hawks employee comes up to Rick and is like, what are we supposed to tell the people in line? From what I understand, the lines are, are rapidly, rapidly growing. We, we stopped crossing across the building. Okay. Rick is on the phone basically this whole time. I've seen him in situations like this before. Everyone around him is wound up, and he sort of slows down. Um, I mean, we've tested all these poll pads, so I just don't understand how this, what's, what the f- is going on. <sighs> he runs up the stairs, breathing hard because of his mask, looking for a county IT employee. Then the CEO of the Hawks, Steve Coonan, comes up to him. This is not the public relations win Coonan was hoping for when he offered up his team's arena. We should not have been put in this position, one hour in, where I have to stand in front of the press and tell them why people can't vote. Yeah, I know. Well, we'll get it. We'll get it squared away here. These two guys right now are resetting poll pads, so we're going to be able to get... Right, that they have to do 60 manually. Yeah. And that's not fast. And they don't seem to be... I mean... That's a voter that is literally... Rick and the Fulton staff finally figure out a fix. They have to update a file and reset the iPads used to check people in. That's why the lines start moving. People can vote. It's hard to show some of this stuff. It was a small win for Rick and the Fulton staff. Later, the Hawk CEO, Coonan, came up to Rick again. An hour made a big difference. Everyone's pumped up, except for Rick. Listen to this exchange. Coonan's beaming, and Rick is like, 
This was awful. Well, I will say our recovery actually was faster than it felt. Uh, well, it was. It just felt like a nightmare. A nightmare. I mean, why don't that, we just go proactively talk to the press yeah, and knock it out? And just do fix it. Yeah, that yeah. would be. I think that it's the smartest good. thing we can do. Everyone ready? Everybody ready? Hey, David. Yeah. All right. Well, good morning. I'm Rob Pitts. I'm chairman of the Board of Commissioners of Fulton County. I'm joined. Pitts by, tells the reporters uh, and TV cameras how great things are going. Then Rick gets the job of explaining what went wrong. An issue, I, I don't know the cause of it yet. There's something with the, the database on, on the poll pads that was here. So we apologize to all the voters and to, to the Hawks and Mr. Kuhn. Afterward, Rick walks through the floor of the arena and pauses, just for a moment. It's serene watching the people quietly vote. Then he heads to his car. It's around noon, but he seems tired. I was feeling like so comfortable and I'm watching people coming in, streaming into the building. And I was like, I was excited. Thought, oh wow, this is gonna be so good. And then that, what a morning. But I, I don't understand. I mean, some people are complaining that, wow, this is, I heard somebody say we've got June all over again this morning at these at these early voting sites and it's like we got 30 32 sites open the fir- in June it was 5 There were snags in those first days lines did get long sometimes but Rick felt like things were under control But Tuesday night I got an email from Rick's assistant with some scary news One of the election staff tested positive for the virus, just like during the primary. I called Rick the next day. By then, even more people had tested positive. I'm doing a press conference at 2. I don't know if you've got it, but I've got 13 infections at the warehouse. The warehouse is where the county keeps all the printers and voting computers. They've always been worried about the virus spreading there because it's so full of equipment and it's hard to stay six feet apart. People do wear masks, and one manager even had a barrier in her office so people couldn't get close, but she still got sick. I I just don't want anybody to die out of this or be, you know, be one of those long haulers where they're just sick forever, you know? Hopefully they'll get over it quick, but we've got a couple guys that are sick that are seniors. I don't know. You know, there's... kind of a, I mean, this is going to end up being like a national story, probably, when you got this many in an elections warehouse. This isn't like one or two. This is a full-blown outbreak. By Monday, two days later, the total was 23 cases. At least one person was in the hospital. All the workers at the warehouse were sent home, except for a few who hadn't tested positive. I'm I'm at the warehouse, uh, I'll be here for a minute. Hold, hold on for a second. I got a call coming. I called Tim Cummings hey, one night. He's a manager at the warehouse who I'm you heard good. earlier. Are you are you worried about getting sick? Yeah, I wor- I've been worried about getting sick since March. Um, you know, like a lot of my crew, we're scared, but we come in, we do what we got to do. You know, we're worried about making sure this election happens successfully. So we're doing everything we can to get it done. What are you what are you most worried about right now in terms of 
pulling off the election. Getting it all done in time. It's like right now, my one of the reasons I stay so late, I'm like, if I can make everything that they need to do the LNA and program the machines. He's talking about getting the voting computers all ready for testing and then delivered to polling places by election day. If I can get all that prepared before something happens, before I, before I test positive or whatever, everything will be fine because somebody else can step in at that point. My worry is not getting that complete. Hoping I can hold out till everybody else comes back <laughs> or somebody gets back. All over the country, people are freaking out about the election, worried about hacking, violence and intimidation, the supposed voter fraud President Trump keeps talking about. But none of that has been a big problem for Rick and the Fulton staff. Their problem's something bigger. Yeah, the virus has been the disruption. I mean, I heard somebody yesterday say, oh, I've lived through, uh, you know, the decades of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and the, and the teens, and now I've also lived through every month of 2020. Uh, you know, it's like, it's almost like its own decade in itself. And yeah, I mean, this has been the weirdest year of my life. The county hired some outside help. Rick says the plan right now is just for everyone to work really long days. Johnny Kaufman is a reporter with Atlanta's public radio station, WABE. His reporting at the Fulton County Elections Department is possible thanks to the Neiman Foundation for Journalism and the Abrams Foundation. As I'm recording this, the total number of election workers in Fulton County that have tested positive for COVID is 25. Two people are in the ICU. Some others have returned to work. The program was produced today by Robin Semyon and Susan Burton. People who put our program together today include Bim Matawunmi, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Hilary Elkins, Nor Gill, Damian Grafe, Michelle Harris, Hannah Jaffe Waltz, Seth Lynn, Miki Meek, Lena Masitsis, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Manuel Berry. Special thanks to Chris Haxel, Emma Hurt, Matei Halmas, Michaela Robertson, Anna Gorman, John Carey, Geneva Sullivan and Redstone Firearms, Laurie Abramson, and Catherine Wells. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he was invited to a party this week. He dressed for Halloween as Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf. When he got there, he realized it was a fundraising gala. Black tie. I'm there in, like, set-off sweatpants and a hoodie, you know, wearing a mask. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Mm-hmm.